Chapters 44 and 45 of Don Quixote, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Don Quixote, Volume 2, by Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Translated by William Ormsby. Chapters 44 and 45. Chapter 44. How Sancho Panza was conducted to his government, and of the strange adventure that befell Don Quixote in the castle. It is stated, they say, in the true original of this history, that when Cide Amete came to write this chapter, his interpreter did not translate it as he wrote it, that is, as a kind of complaint the Moor made against himself for having taken in hand a story so dry and of so little variety as this of Don Quixote, for he found himself forced to speak perpetually of him and Sancho, without venturing to indulge in digressions and episodes more serious and more interesting. He said, too, that to go on, mind, hand, pen always restricted to writing upon one single subject, and speaking through the mouths of a few characters, was intolerable drudgery, the result of which was never equal to the author's labor, and that to avoid this he had in the first part availed himself of the device of novels, like The Ill-Advised Curiosity and The Captive Captain, which stand, as it were, apart from the story. The others are given there being incidents which occurred to Don Quixote himself, and could not be omitted. He also thought, he says, that many, engrossed by the interest attaching to the exploits of Don Quixote, would take none in the novels, and pass them over hastily or impatiently, without noticing the elegance and art of their composition, which would be very manifest were they published by themselves, and not as mere adjuncts to the crazes of Don Quixote or the simplicities of Sancho. Therefore, in this second part, he thought it best not to insert novels, either separate or interwoven, but only episodes, something like them, arising out of the circumstances the facts present, and even these sparingly, and with no more words than to suffice to make them plain, and as he confines and restricts himself to the narrow limits of the narrative, though he has the ability, capacity and brains enough to deal with the whole universe, he requests that his labors may not be despised, and that credit be given him, not alone for what he writes, but for what he has refrained from writing. And so he goes on with his story, saying that the day Don Quixote gave the counsels to Sancho, the same afternoon after dinner he handed them to him in writing, so that he might get someone to read them to him. They had scarcely, however, been given to him, when he let them drop, and they fell into the hands of the duke, who showed them to the duchess, and they were both amazed afresh at the madness and wit of Don Quixote. To carry on the joke, then, the same evening they dispatched Sancho with a large following to the village that was to serve him for an island. It happened that the person who had him in charge was a major-domo of the duke's, a man of great discretion and humor, and there can be no humor without discretion and the same who played the part of the Countess Trifaldi in the comical way that has been already described, and thus qualified and instructed by his master and mistress as to how to deal with Sancho, he carried out their scheme admirably. Now it came to pass that as soon as Sancho saw this major-domo, he seemed in his features to recognize those of the Trifaldi, and turning to his master he said to him, Senor, either the devil will carry me off, here on this spot, righteous in believing, or your worship will own to me that the face of this major-domo of the duke's here is the very face of the distressed one. Don Quixote regarded the major-domo attentively, and having done so said to Sancho, 
There is no reason why the devil should carry thee off, Sancho, either righteous or believing, and what thou meanest by that I know not. The face of the distressed one is that of the majordomo, but for all that the majordomo is not the distressed one, for his being so would involve a mighty contradiction. But this is not the time for going into questions of the sort, which would be involving ourselves in an inextricable labyrinth. Believe me, my friend, we must pray earnestly to our Lord, that he deliver us both from wicked wizards and enchanters. It is no joke, senor, said Sancho, for before this I heard him speak, and it seemed exactly as if the voice of the Trifaldi was sounding in my ears. Well, I'll hold my peace, but I'll take care to be on the lookout henceforth for any sign that may be seen to confirm or to do away with the suspicion. Thou wilt do well, Sancho, said Don Quixote, and thou wilt let me know all thou discoverest, and all that befells thee in thy government. Sancho at last set out, attended by a great number of people. He was dressed in the garb of a lawyer, with a gabin of tawny-watered camlet over all, and a montera cap of the same material, and mounted a la jineta upon a mule. Behind him, in accordance with the duke's orders, followed Dapple with brand-new ass trappings and ornaments of silk, and from time to time Sancho turned round to look at his ass, so well pleased to have him with him that he would not have changed places with the Emperor of Germany. On taking leave he kissed the hands of the Duke and Duchess and got his master's blessing, which Don Quixote gave him with tears, and he received blubbering. Let worthy Sancho go in peace, and good luck to him, gentle reader, and look out for two bushels of laughter, which the account of how he behaved himself in office will give thee. In the meantime, turn thy attention to what happened his master the same night, and if thou dost not laugh thereat, at any rate thou wilt stretch thy mouth with a grin, for Don Quixote's adventures must be honored either with wonder or with laughter. It is recorded, then, that as soon as Sancho had gone, Don Quixote felt his loneliness, and had it been possible for him to revoke the mandate and take away the government from him, he would have done so. The Duchess observed his dejection, and asked him why he was melancholy. Because, she said, if it was for the loss of Sancho, there were squires, duenas, and damsels in her house who would wait upon him to his full satisfaction. The truth is, senora, replied Don Quixote, that I do feel the loss of Sancho, but that is not the main cause of my looking sad, and of all the offers your excellence makes me, I accept only the good will with which they are made, and as to the remainder, I entreat of your excellence to permit and allow me alone to wait upon myself in my chamber. Indeed, Señor Don Quixote, said the Duchess, that must not be. Four of my damsels, as beautiful as flowers, shall wait upon you. To me, said Don Quixote, they will not be flowers, but thorns to pierce my heart. They, or anything like them, shall as soon enter my chamber as fly. If your highness wishes to gratify me still further, though I deserve it not, permit me to please myself and wait upon myself in my own room for I place a barrier between my inclinations and my virtue, and I do not wish to break this rule through the generosity your highness is disposed to display towards me, and, in short, I will sleep in my clothes sooner than allow any one to undress me. Say no more, Señor Don Quixote, say no more, said the Duchess. I assure you I will give orders that not even a fly, not to say a damsel, shall enter your room. I am not the one to undermine the propriety of Señor Don Quixote, for it strikes me that among his many virtues, the one that is pre-eminent is that of modesty. Your worship may undress and dress in private and in your own way, 
as you please and when you please, for there will be no one to hinder you. And in your chamber you will find all the utensils requisite to supply the wants of one who sleeps with his door locked, to the end that no natural needs compel you to open it. May the great Dulcinea del Toboso live a thousand years, and may her fame extend over all the surface of the globe, for she deserves to be loved by a knight so valiant and so virtuous, and may kind heaven infuse zeal into the heart of our governor Sancho Panza, to finish off his discipline speedily, so that the world may once more enjoy the beauty of so grand a lady. To which Don Quixote replied, Your Highness has spoken like what you are. From the mouth of a noble lady nothing bad can come, and Dulcinea will be more fortunate and better known to the world by the praise of your Highness than by all the eulogies the great orators on earth could bestow upon her. Well, well, Señor Don Quixote, said the Duchess, is nearly supper-time, and the Duke is probably waiting. Come, let us go to supper, and retire to rest early, for the journey you made yesterday from Candy was not such a short one, but it must have caused you some fatigue. I feel none, Senora, said Don Quixote, for I would go so far as to swear to your excellence that in all my life I never mounted a quieter beast, or a pleasanter paced one, than Clavileño, and I don't know what could have induced Malambruno to discard a steed so swift and so gentle, and burn it so recklessly as he did. Probably, said the Duchess, repenting of the evil he had done to the Trifaldi and company and others, and the crimes he must have committed as a wizard and enchanter, he resolved to make away with all the instruments of his craft. So he burned Cavaleño as the chief one, and that which mainly kept him restless, wandering from land to land, and by its ashes and the trophy of the placard the valor of the great Don Quixote of La Mancha is established forever. Don Quixote renewed his thanks to the Duchess, and having supped, retired to his chamber alone, refusing to allow anyone to enter with him and to wait on him. Such was his fear of encountering temptations that might lead or drive him to forget his chaste fidelity to his lady Dulcinea, for he had always present to his mind the virtue of Amadis, that flower and mirror of knights errant. He locked the door behind him, and by the light of two wax candles undressed himself, but as he was taking off his stockings, oh, disaster unworthy of such a personage, there came a burst not of sighs or anything belying his delicacy or good breeding, but of some two dozen stitches in one of his stockings that made it look like a window lattice. The worthy gentleman was beyond measure distressed, and at that moment he would have given half an ounce of silver to have had half a drachm of green silk there. I say green silk because the stockings were green. Here Cide Amete exclaimed as he was writing, Oh, poverty, poverty, I know not what could have possessed the great Cordovan poet to call thee holy gift ungratefully received. Though a Moor, I know well enough from the intercourse I have had with Christians that holiness consists in charity, humility, faith, obedience, and poverty. But for all that, I say he must have a great deal of godliness who can find any satisfaction in being poor, unless, indeed, it be the kind of poverty one of their greatest saints refers to, saying, Possess all things as though ye possessed them not, which is what they call poverty in spirit. But thou, that other poverty, for it is of thee I am speaking now, why dost thou love to fall out with gentlemen and men of good birth more than with other people? Why dost thou compel them to smear the cracks in their shoes, and to have the buttons of their coats, one silk, another hair, and another glass? Why must their ruffs be always crinkled like endive leaves, and not crimped with a crimping iron? 
From this we may perceive the antiquity of starch and crimped ruffs. Then he goes on. Poor gentleman of good family, always cockering up his honor, dining miserably and in secret, and making a hypocrite of the toothpick with which he sallies out into the street, after eating nothing to oblige him to use it. Poor fellow, I say, with his nervous honor, fancying they perceive a league off, the patch on his shoe, and sweat-stains on his hat, the shabbiness of his cloak, and the hunger of his stomach. All this was brought home to Don Quixote by the bursting of his stitches. However, he comforted himself on perceiving that Sancho had left behind a pair of traveling boots which he resolved to wear the next day. At last he went to bed, out of spirits and heavy at heart, as much because he missed Sancho as because of the irreparable disaster to his stockings, the stitches of which he would have even taken up with silk of another color, which is one of the greatest signs of poverty a gentleman can show in the course of his never-failing embarrassments. He put out the candles, but the night was warm and he could not sleep. He rose from his bed and opened slightly a grated window that looked out on a beautiful garden, and as he did so he perceived and heard people walking and talking in the garden. He set himself to listen attentively, and those below raised their voices so that he could hear these words. Urge me not to sing, Emerencia, for thou knowest that ever since this stranger entered the castle and my eyes beheld him, I cannot sing but only weep. Besides, my lady is a light rather than a heavy sleeper, and I would not, for all the wealth of the world, that she found us here. And even if she were asleep and did not waken, my singing would be in vain, if this strange Aeneas, who has come into my neighborhood to flout me, sleeps on and awakens not to hear it. Heed not that, dear Altisidora, replied a voice. The Duchess is no doubt asleep, and everybody in the house save the lord of thy heart and disturber of thy soul. For just now I perceived him open the grated window of his chamber, so he must be awake. Sing, my poor sufferer, in a low sweet tone to the accompaniment of thy harp and even if the duchess hears us, we can lay the blame on the heat of the night. That is not the point, Emerencia, replied Altisidora. It is that I would not that my singing should lay bare my heart, and that I should be thought a light and wanton maiden by those who know not the mighty power of love. But come what may, better a blush on the cheeks than a sore in the heart. And here a harp softly touch made itself heard. As he listened to all this, Don Quixote was in a state of breathless amazement, for immediately the countless adventures like this, with windows, gratings, gardens, serenades, love-makings, and languishings, that he had read of in his trashy books of chivalry, came to his mind. He at once concluded that some damsel of the duchesses was in love with him, and that her modesty forced her to keep her passion secret. He trembled lest he should fall, and made an inward resolution not to yield, and commending himself with all his might and soul to his lady Dulcinea, he made up his mind to listen to the music, and to let them know he was here he gave a pretended sneeze, at which the damsels were not a little delighted, for all they wanted was that Don Quixote should hear them. So having tuned the harp, Altisidora, running her hand across the strings, began this ballad. O thou that art above in bed, between the holland sheets, a lying there from night till morn, with outstretched legs asleep, O thou, most valiant knight of all, the famed Manchegan breed, of purity and virtue more than gold of Araby, give ear unto a suffering maid, well-grown but evil-starred, for those two sons of thine have lit a fire within her heart. Adventures seeking thou dost rove, to others bringing woe. 
Thou scatterest wounds, but ah, the balm, to heal them dost withhold. Say, valiant youth, and so may God, thy enterprises speed, didst thou the light mid Libya's sands, or Jacka's rocks first see? Did scaly serpents give thee suck? Who nursed thee when a babe? Wert cradled in the forest rude, or gloomy mountain cave? O Dulcinea may be proud, that plump and lusty maid, for she alone hath had the power a tiger fierce to tame. And she for all this shall famous be, from Tagus to Harama, from Manzanares to Henil, from Duero to Arlanza. Fain would I change with her, and give a petticoat to boot, the best and bravest that I have, all trimmed with gold galoon. O oh, for to be the happy fair, thy mighty arms enfold, or even sit beside thy bed, and scratch thy dusty pole. I rave, to favors such as these, unworthy to aspire, thy feet to tickle were enough, for one so mean as I. What caps, what slippers silver-laced, would I on thee bestow? What damask breeches make for thee, what fine long-holland cloaks? And I would give thee pearls that should, as big as oak-galls show, so matchless big that each might well be called the great alone. Manchegan Nero, look not down from thy Tarpeian rock, upon this burning heart nor add the fuel of thy wrath. A virgin soft and young am I, not yet fifteen years old. I'm only three months past fourteen, I swear upon my soul. I hobble not, nor do I limp, all blemish I'm without, and as I walk my lily-locks are trailing to the ground. And though my nose be rather flat, and though my mouth be wide, my teeth like topazes exalt my beauty to the sky. Thou knowest that my voice is sweet, that is, if thou dost hear, and I am moulded in a form somewhat below the mean. These charms and many more are thine, spoils to thy spear and bow all. A damsel of this house am I, my name Altisidora. Here the lay of the heart-sicken Altisidora came to an end, while the warmly wooed Don Quixote began to feel alarm, and with a deep sigh he said to himself, Oh, that I should be such an unlucky knight that no damsel can set eyes on me but falls in love with me! Oh, that the peerless Dulcinea should be so unfortunate that they cannot let her enjoy my incomparable constancy in peace! What would ye with her, ye queens? Why do ye persecute her, ye empresses? Why ye pursue her, ye virgins of from fourteen to fifteen? Leave the unhappy being to triumph, rejoice, and glory in the lot love has been pleased to bestow upon her, in surrendering my heart and yielding up my soul to her. Ye love-smitten host, know that to Dulcinea only I am dough and sugar-paste, flint to all others. For her I am honey, for you aloes. For me Dulcinea alone is beautiful, wise, virtuous, graceful, and high-bred, and all others are ill-favored, foolish, light, and low-born." Nature sent me into the world to be hers and no others. Altisidora may weep or sing, the lady for whose sake they belabored me in the castle of the enchanted moor may give way to despair, but I must be Dulcinea's, boiled or roast, pure, courteous, and chaste, in spite of all the magic-working powers on earth. And with that he shut the window with a bang, and, as much out of temper and out of sorts as if some great misfortune had befallen him, stretched himself on his bed, where we will leave him for the present, as the great Sancho Panza, who is about to set up his famous government, now demands our attention. Chapter 45 Of how the great Sancho Panza took possession of his island, and of how he made a beginning in governing. 
O perpetual discoverer of the antipodes, torch of the world, eye of heaven, sweet stimulator of the water-coolers! Thimbraeus here, Phoebus there, now archer, now physician, father of poetry, inventor of music, thou that always risest, and, notwithstanding appearances, never settest. To thee, O son, by whose aid man begetteth man, to thee I appeal to help me and enlighten the darkness of my wit, that I may be able to proceed with scrupulous exactitude in giving an account of the great Sancho Panza's government, for without thee I feel myself weak, feeble, and uncertain. To come to the point, then, Sancho with all his attendants arrived at a village of some thousand inhabitants, and one of the largest the duke possessed. They informed him that it was called the island of Barataria, either because the name of the village was Barataria, or because of the joke by way of which the government had been conferred upon him. On reaching the gates of the town, which was a walled one, the municipality came forth to meet him, the bells rang out a peal, and the inhabitants showed every sign of general satisfaction, and with great pomp they conducted him into the principal church to give thanks to God, and then with burlesque ceremonies they presented him with the keys of the town, and acknowledged him as the perpetual governor of the island of Barataria. The costume, the beard, and the fat squat figure of the new governor astonished all those who were not in the secret, and even all who were, and they were not a few. Finally, leading him out of the church, they carried him to the judgment seat and seated him on it, and the duke's majordomo said to him, It is an ancient custom in this island, Signor Governor, that he who comes to take possession of this famous island is bound to answer a question which shall be put to him, and which must be a somewhat knotty and difficult one, and by his answer the people take the measure of their new governor's wit, and hail with joy or deplore his arrival accordingly. While the majordomo was making this speech, Sancho was gazing at several large letters inscribed on the wall opposite his seat, and as he could not read, he asked what it was that was painted on the wall. The answer was, Senor, there is written and recorded the day on which your lordship took possession of this island, and the inscription says, This day, the so-and-so of such-and-such a month and year, Senor Don Sancho Panza took possession of this island, many years may he enjoy it. And whom do they call Don Sancho Panza? asked Sancho. Your lordship, replied the majordomo, for no other Panza but the one who is now seated in that chair has ever entered this island. Well then, let me tell you, brother, said Sancho, I haven't got the don, nor has any one of my family ever had it. My name is plain Sancho Panza, and Sancho was my father's name, and Sancho was my grandfather's, and they were all Panzas, without any dons or donias tacked on. I suspect that in this island there are more dons than stones, but never mind. God knows what I mean, and maybe if my government lasts four days, I'll weed out these dones that no doubt are as great a nuisance as the midges, they're so plenty. Let the majordomo go on with his question, and I'll give the best answer I can, whether the people deplore or not. At this point there came into court two old men, one carrying a cane by way of a walking stick, and the one who had no stick said, Senor, some time ago I lent this good man ten gold crowns in gold, to gratify him and do him a service, on the condition that he was to return them to me whenever I should ask for them. A long time passed before I asked for them, for I would not put him to any greater straits to return them than he was when I lent them to him. But thinking he was growing careless about payment, I asked for them once and several times, and not only will he not give them back, but he denies that he owes them, and says I never lent him any such crowns, 
or if I did, that he repaid them, and I have no witnesses either of the loan or the payment, for he never paid me. I want your worship to put him to his oath, and if he swears he returned them to me, I forgive him the debt here and before God. What say you to this good old man, you with the stick? said Sancho. To which the old man replied, I admit, senor, that he lent them to me, but let your worship lower your staff, and as he leaves it to my oath, I'll swear that I gave them back and paid him really and truly. The governor lowered his staff, and as he did so, the old man who had the stick handed it to the other old man to hold for him while he swore, as if he found it in his way, and then laid his hand on the cross of the staff, saying it was true the ten crowns that were demanded of him had been lent him, but that he had with his own hand given them back into the hand of the other, and that he, not recollecting it, was always asking for them. Seeing this, the great governor asked the creditor what answer he had to make to what his opponent said. He said that no doubt his debtor had told the truth, for he believed him to be an honest man and a good Christian, and he himself must have forgotten when and how he had given him back the crowns, and that from that time forth he would make no further demand upon him. The debtor took his stick again, and bowing his head left the court. Observing this, and how, without another word, he made off, and observing too the resignation of the plaintiff, Sancho buried his head in his bosom and remained for a short space in deep thought, with the forefinger of his right hand on his brow and nose. Then he raised his head and bade them call back the old man with the stick, for he had already taken his departure. They brought him back, and as soon as Sancho saw him, he said, Honest man, give me that stick, for I want it. Willingly, said the old man, here it is, senor, and he put it into his hand. Sancho took it, and, handing it to the other old man, said to him, Go, and God be with you, for now you are paid. I, senor, returned the old man, why, is this cane worth ten gold crowns? Yes, said the governor, or if not, I am the greatest dolt in the world. Now you will see whether I have got the headpiece to govern a whole kingdom. And he ordered the cane to be broken in two, there, in the presence of all. It was done, and in the middle of it they found ten gold crowns. All were filled with amazement, and looked upon their governor as another Solomon. They asked him how he had come to the conclusion that the ten crowns were in the cane. He replied that observing how the old man who swore gave the stick to his opponent while he was taking the oath, and swore that he had really and truly given him the crowns, and how as soon as he had done swearing he asked for the stick again, it came into his head that the sum demanded must be inside it and from this he said it might be seen that God sometimes guides those who govern in their judgments, even though they may be fools. Besides, he had himself heard the curate of his village mention just such another case, and he had so good a memory that if it was not that he forgot everything he wished to remember, there would not be such a memory in all the island. To conclude, the old men went off, one crestfallen and the other in high contentment. All who were present were astonished, and he who was recording the words, deeds, and movements of Sancho could not make up his mind whether he was to look upon him and set him down as a fool or as a man of sense. As soon as this case was disposed of, there came into the court a woman holding on with a tight grip to a man dressed like a well-to-do cattle dealer, and she came forward making a great outcry and exclaiming, Justice, Senor Governor, justice, and if I don't get it on earth, I'll go look for it in heaven. Senor Governor, of my soul, this wicked man caught me in the middle of the fields here, and used my body as if it was an ill-washed rag, and, woe is me, got for me what I had kept these three-and-twenty years and more, 
defending it against Moors and Christians, natives and strangers, and I always as hard as an oak, and keeping myself as pure as a salamander in the fire, or wool among the brambles, for this good fellow to come now with clean hands to handle me. It remains to be proved whether this gallant has clean hands or not, said Sancho, and turning to the man, he asked him what he had to say in answer to the woman's charge. He, all in confusion, made answer, Sirs, I am a poor pig-dealer, and this morning I left the village to sell, saving your presence, four pigs, and between dues and cribbings they got out of me little less than the worth of them. As I was returning to my village I fell in on the road with this good dame, and the devil who makes a coil and a mess out of everything yoked us together. I paid her fairly, but she, not contented, laid hold of me and never let go until she brought me here. She says I forced her, but she lies by the oath I swear, or am ready to swear. And this is the whole truth and every particle of it. The governor on this asked him if he had any money and silver about him. He said he had about twenty ducats in a leather purse in his bosom. The governor bade him take it out and hand it to the complainant. He obeyed trembling. The woman took it, and making a thousand salams to all, and praying to God for the long life and health of the senior governor, who had such regard for distressed orphans and virgins, she hurried out of court with the purse grasped in both her hands, first looking, however, to see if the money it contained was silver. As soon as she was gone, Sancho said to the cattle dealer, whose tears were already starting, and whose eyes and heart were following his purse, Good fellow, go after that woman and take the purse from her, by force even, and come back with it here. And he did not say it to one who was a fool or deaf, for the man was off like a flash of lightning, and ran to do as he was bid. All the bystanders waited anxiously to see the end of the case, and presently both man and woman came back at even closer grips than before, she with her petticoat up and the purse in the lap of it, and he struggling hard to take it from her, but all to no purpose, so stout was the woman's defense, she all the while crying out, Justice from God and the world! See here, Señor Governor, the shameless and boldness of this villain, who in the middle of the town, in the middle of the street, wanted to take from me the purse your worship bade him give me. And did he take it? asked the governor. Take it, said the woman. I'd let my life be taken from me sooner than the purse. A pretty child I'd be. It's another sort of cat they must throw in my face, and not that poor scurvy knave. Pinchers and hammers, mallets and chisels, would not get it out of my grip. No, nor lion's claws, the soul from out of my body first. She is right, said the man. I own myself beaten and powerless. I confess I haven't the strength to take it from her, and he let go his hold of her. Upon this the governor said to the woman, Let me see that purse, my worthy and sturdy friend. She handed it to him at once, and the governor returned it to the man, and said to the unforced mistress of force, Sister, if you had shown as much, or only half as much, spirit and vigor in defending your body as you have shown in defending that purse, the strength of Hercules could not have forced you. Be off, and God speed you, and bad luck to you, and don't show your face in all this island, or within six leagues of it on any side, under pain of two hundred lashes. Be off at once, I say, you shameless cheating shrew. The woman was cowed and went off disconsolately, hanging her head. And the governor said to the man, Honest man, go home with your money, and God speed you, and for the future, if you don't want to lose it, see that you don't take it into your head to yoke with anybody. The man thanked him as clumsily as he could and went his way, and the bystanders were again filled with admiration at their new governor's judgments and sentences. 
Next, two men, one apparently a farm laborer, and the other a tailor, for he had a pair of shears in his hand, presented themselves before him, and the tailor said, Senor Governor, this laborer and I came before your worship by reason of this honest man coming to my shop yesterday, for saving everybody's presence I'm a past tailor, God be thanked, and putting a piece of cloth into my hands and asking me, Senor, will there be enough in this cloth to make a cap? Measuring the cloth, I said there would. He probably suspected, as I supposed, and I supposed right, that I wanted to steal some of the cloth, led to think so by his own roguery and the bad opinion people have of tailors. And he told me to see if there would be enough for two. I guessed what he would be at, and I said yes. He, still following up his original unworthy notion, went on adding cap after cap, and I yes after yes, until we got as far as five. He has just this moment come for them. I gave them to him, but he won't pay me for the making. On the contrary, he calls on me to pay him, or else return his cloth. Is all this true, brother? said Sancho. Yes, replied the man, but will your worship make him show the five caps he has made me? With all my heart, said the tailor, and drawing his hand from under his cloak, he showed five caps stuck upon the five fingers of it, and said, There are the caps this good man asks for, and by God and upon my conscience I haven't a scrap of cloth left, and I'll let the work be examined by the inspectors of the trade. All present laughed at the number of caps and the novelty of the suit. Sancho set himself to think for a moment, and then said, It seems to me that in this case it is not necessary to deliver long-winded arguments, but only to give off-hand the judgment of an honest man. And so my decision is that the tailor lose the making and the laborer the cloth, and that the caps go to the prisoners in the jail, and let there be no more about it. If the previous decision about the cattle dealer's purse excited the admiration of the bystanders, this provoked their laughter. However, the governor's orders were after all executed. All this, having been taken down by his chronicler, was at once dispatched to the duke, who was looking out for it with great eagerness. And here let us leave the good Sancho, for his master, sorely troubled in mind by Altisidora's music, has pressing claims upon us now. End of chapters 44 and 45